Welcome to Sports and Society. This is Brad. I'm here with Kyle. How are you doing today, man? I am doing well. Looking forward to talking about some running shoes today. Such, such an important topic. Uh, um, however, it is important. So maybe that's what I truly am excited about is that it, it sounds innocuous, but there's actually a lot of significance to talking about running shoes, I think. Well, you know, it's funny. As soon as you said that, I had not framed it this way in my mind before, but as soon as you said that, I had this really terrible feeling because what we're talking about is the consumerism in some ways when we break it down like yep. that. Uh, this is all about making money. Uh, and yep. we, we can get into that in a minute. But um, uh, I did uh, want to share before we get too much further that uh, congrats to my boy, uh, Djokovic, Um who has never won an easy tennis match in his life, I'm convinced. <laughs> he makes it look hard, doesn't he? He does make it look hard. Yeah. Won the Australian Open in five sets this morning. Um, but uh, I, I did want to comment on the gentleman in the stands wearing a Serbia against the world shirt. Not the best tone, dude. Just want to point it out there. <laughs> uh, check your history before maybe we go too far with that, man. Or maybe it's just the state of the world now. That, maybe it is, David. Yeah. It's sad. But there's there's space for that right now. Tupac was prescient. It's me against the world, man. Goodness. Did you listen to the Tupac um, podcast from Slate? Oh, I, I didn't even know about this. I need, I am. Uh, I would be fascinated to listen to that. Yeah, it's it's a really incredible exploration of all the significant aspects of that story. It's really incredible. Well, I think that's actually a really interesting segue into what I think we wanted to talk about regarding this past week in that I have immense admiration and respect for Tupac. And yet he's also, um, there are arguments to be made about some of the destructive nature of what he was able to accomplish and that it may not have been the most positive legacy at the end of the day, even though I think it's a very complex and there are very positive things that come out of it. Um, I think that that resonates also for this uh, someone else that we saw pass away this week in the form of Kobe Bryant, who clearly did amazing things and has left a legacy of wonder and amazement, but was also a very complex and 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 not uh, totally always a positive character. That just made me think of how interesting and maybe important the question is about when and why we choose to humanize someone's story, especially someone that has achieved legendary status, uh, such that we would call them a legend in the first place, is a construct that we kind of snap into place when we need it to make a point or uh, to serve some sort of social function or even a political and economic function, probably more so than social. But that... Kobe's death came with um, so much tragedy and it came with so much impact and seemingly didn't slow down in any way uh, this past week kind of led me to that place of like we're in the process of constructing this person and to what extent are we humanizing them and to what extent should we be doing that Um so I don't know if that makes complete sense, but that's just kind of what came to my mind, especially like when you contrast it or compare it to someone like Tupac, who, like you said, was so incredibly complex. And the podcast on Slate, what they do is they humanize him deeply. 
that's the intention of the podcast. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I always come down in favor of doing it. And I think um, I am privileged in being able to do that, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I have never been sexually abused. I have never been at risk of that, really. Um, I have never had, um, you know, violence be a presence in my life. Um, and so it's kind of easy for me to do this. And yet, at the end of the day, I do think it's uh, important that we recognize the complexity of all of these things that we engage with and the humanity of all of the people engaged with them. And I think that even goes right now. I mean, you and I, let's be bluntly honest here. Let's take someone that's not controversial right now. Uh, this, this ignoramus we have as our president right now. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of the day, I think it's important that we humanize him and we put him in the context of who he is as a person, who he grew up being, who he's been cherished as being. I mean, we put him on national television and loved everything about him as a culture for 10 years as he ran this program. What, how, uh, how much are we to blame for what's what and who he is right now? Even those of us on the left that, uh, that hate him right now or hate what he's doing. I think anytime we can reduce it to hate and we can reduce someone to one dynamic, uh, it's very troubling. Uh, mm-hmm. and so I think that I'm always in favor of taking a step back and humanizing people. And I think it's also important that we always remember that we can be surprised by people. Um, mm-hmm. this is one of my biggest criticisms of some of the folks out there that, uh, let me, let me call out some folks that I love and their podcast is amazing, but the folks on, um, on the ringer that, uh, analyze game of Thrones. Um, I love your podcast. I love binge mode. Um, uh, uh, but I have to say that, uh, I think these characters, when we assume that they're going to act one way or another, we do a disservice to them and we make them less than human that we all need to expect that humans are going to react in ways that surprise us because we're all complex and we all have people in our family and friends that we don't really understand the way that we think we do. Mm-hmm. And so that leads me to a space of where it is uh, so important, I think, from my personal, like, or where my personal persuasions are and what I am learning as I continue on, on my journey to unpack my privilege is how, and I think we would agree here, of how important it is uh to pay attention to the voices that are doing the framing and the narrative mm-hmm. construction. So that humanizing process, like that's, I, I agree too. I'm really compelled by our capacity as fellow citizens to enwrap someone in a complex story and allow them to be complex. It's also true that complexity for an individual has been <laughs> Uh, withheld and allotted only for the white man for so long, right? Like it, one of the greatest mm-hmm. privileges is to be a complex person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when those that haven't been allowed to be complex get to do the framing and get to do the humanizing, uh, what we get is so much more robust and so much more useful and something that we can be proud of, I think, as uh, a citizenry, to, so to speak. And so... Applying that to Kobe, I am left in this weird kind of dissonance of 
my personal immediate reaction was I, I was devastated and surprisingly so. Yeah, my emotion surprised me and uh, I am still very sad about it. And there are so many reasons for that, namely, I think the family piece and then also probably more so what he's done after basketball and how inspiring I have found a lot of his work to be. And the angle at which he's coming from seems to be one that I can relate to and that I can see him trying to be better, so to speak, and try and put out art into the world. Literally, his production company is a storytelling, storytelling production company. And so his valuing of stories, the way he has supported the WNBA, the way he supports his daughters. Um, so his life after basketball has actually, I think, maybe very personally as if it who cares what i think but where my emotion comes from um I, i'm not completely sure on that but then the fact that like the structure and narrative that's being put around him still seems to be dominated mostly by the espn and the sports world uh is where i'm like ah we we got some work to do here hmm. uh, i don't i don't know how about you? That's interesting. I, I think, you know, my initial response um, was just shock. And then I think it's grown into more and more sadness as the week has gone on, um, you know, particularly from my vantage point as a father, um, seeing the way that he's reacted with his t children and the particular his daughter that passed away mm -hmm. is just absolutely incredible. And I, it's the kind of parent I hope that I can be. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think there's that level of it and the tragedy of, of dying with your child is just um, unfathomable. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the thing that has stood out to me is perhaps uh, a little bit different from yours in that um, uh, you're not on Facebook, are you? I am not, no. Uh, so I think the reaction for me has been really interesting from Facebook and particularly from my African-American friends on Facebook and to see the legacy that he leaves behind as a beloved member of that community has been really powerful. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it kind of goes back to your comments about people that are not those that have traditionally had power setting narratives and uh, thriving in the complexity of who these people are and articulating who they are. And that I think is what has been so compelling to me is to see the African American community in the way that they have, uh, mourned in the way that we have been able to see his impact and then has been just really um, really powerful to me and to see uh, the way it challenges my own perspectives of uh, of who he was and changes uh, who he was um, he was clearly a figure that I don't think I will ever really understand what he mm -hmm. meant to a lot of people and that's okay mm -hmm. and it makes him somewhat uh, and really very much more powerful Mm -hmm. uh, in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that I'm really glad you pointed that out. That that help put helps put some words and some structure to what feels gross to me when he's uh, distilled down to a basketball player or a famous person, and that's why we're sad is because we are seeing tragedy unfold for a famous person. When in fact, there's reason for that fame, and oftentimes those reasons uh, are are hopeful and inspiring, 
and in many ways that that's what he was and i think too maybe like i don't know there's just so much more to him than a basketball player and that's where i think my hesitation what was coming from this week of when i felt like it was being dwindled down to fame and basketball um when in fact he he meant so much more yeah, it is. You know, it's. I think it's interesting because I think bas- it, what he's done has shown us the, how basketball has been a tool for change in the community that he came from. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that Jordan came out and created this sense of possibility, but Jordan was always standoffish in some ways and was never really willing to embrace that in a way that I think Kobe was like, yes, I'll be that person. Um, right. And I think that we see that and we see that, uh, you know, I think it, even though this is, you know, it's living in this basketball sphere, I think what we see or what I see when I see these players that are impacted in this way is that this is a, this is a person that had a very personal impact on all of these people. It wasn't just about who they were on the basketball court. And there's, there's share these stories of who he was on the basketball court or who he was on the practice court or. I love these stories about there's a rookie that comes in to work out and Kobe's in there when he comes in and he like works out for two hours to try and stay in there longer than Kobe. And Kobe's still there when he leaves. And later Kobe comes up to him. He's like, yo punk, I stayed there because I wanted to prove to you, I will always work harder than you do. (laughs) It's like this amazing story. And, but at the end of the day, it's like, it's, it's, it's sharing that basketball story is really about more than basketball. It's about someone that, change the sense of what's possible um, right. for an entire generation really of people right yeah yeah so anyway that's not to say again you know he had plenty of warts and things that were problematic i mean we can go to the basic one of this mm-hmm. legal case that we all know about at this point. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's very much complexity in there. We don't want to limit that to uh, right. you know, to who he is. But I think that we have to uh, – what's been so amazing is to see uh, someone who is not someone we traditionally see complex uh, – their complexity made known, as you pointed out, uh, right. being given that space and given that time for that story to emerge. Right, right. Yeah, and public mourning is such a fascinating thing, too. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the same way of, like, who gets to decide how it plays out and how that mourning unfolds, uh, I think is always interesting to watch and pay attention to because it's revealing of power in in so many ways. Um, And so, yeah, um, so far it's it's still just been so sad. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm still so upset about it. Yeah, again, I mean, uh, this one particular story, you know, this one video of him sitting courtside with his daughter explaining some aspect of the game and then having immense pride when she, like, explains it back to him and clearly Mm -hmm. gets it. Like, that moment is just gets me every time. Mm -hmm. But then also there's this interview out there. I don't remember who it's with where someone asked them, like, do you want to say anything for your legacy here? And he says, uh, oh, my daughter will be my legacy. And that, that just gets me, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. so tough. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway. You want to talk about shoes? Let's talk about shoes. There is great irony in this transition in some ways, given the fact that Kobe's signature shoes 
from before, like several years before he retired, are still the most popular shoes in the NBA amongst players right now. Wow. That's fascinating. He kind of invented the low top or right. brought the low top into the game. And his shoes are worn by like this particular model, which is like 10 years old, is worn by, I think there's something like 50 to 60% of players in the NBA. Wow. There's so much there. Okay. Yeah. That's a good transition. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I think it's interesting to talk about shoes uh, at the start because it sounds like something that may not be that significant or worth talking about. But when you start to peel back some layers, the fact that the newest Nike Marathon shoe, which is a port, an important designation to make, is there are hundreds of types of <laughs> shoes for hundreds of types of running. Uh, but Nike's newest shoe, uh, the Alpha Fly, which was a prototype worn by two marathoners this past year that both uh, broke world records in back-to-back days. Uh, and maybe most significantly breaking the two-hour mark mm-hmm. uh, and running the fastest marathon ever that was like other milestones that many people thought would just never be broken. Um, That is it humanly possible to run a sub two hour marathon was the question that was answered. Um, And so in that space, uh, there's a really interesting conversation emerging. And it's a conversation that can be relayed to so many other parts of the sports world and the industrial complexes that underlie the sports world. So where this gets really interesting is after breaking the marathon records, there was uh, plenty of voices from the running community that were just simply calling it cheating. And what they were calling cheating kind of gets into the granular um, aspects of this, and which means to get into the technology of it. And so the Alpha Fly uh, stands out for a couple reasons. The Nike was using a foam that no other shoe companies were using and/or had access to. Uh, I have yet to find much information. This is kind of a, kind of an aside, but. Uh, supposedly the foam is really hard to extract uh, and to make such that it achieves what it is meant to achieve. So that's something kind of gets into the whole access piece, who has access and how that relates to what we call cheating. Mm -hmm. Um, It also has uh, the shoes that broke the marathon records had three carbon plates in them. And the carbon plates were inserted between the foam And the foam was much thicker than normal uh, on most marathon shoes. And in effect, what those that were calling this cheating were calling cheating is the trampoline-like effect uh, that was made possible by those carbon fiber plates. And essentially, it gives it a rigidity such that the uh, energy output... Uh, is strengthened by about what Runner's World, their science lab for running shoes, found to increase about 4% efficiency rate. Mm. And so when you spread that out over a marathon for an elite runner, uh, it comes down to a couple seconds a mile, uh, which is significant over 26 miles, such that you can break the record. Uh, 
where it becomes even more interesting is that the World Athletics Organization, formerly the IAAF, uh, has come out and said that alpha flies as they existed in those record-breaking marathons are now illegal insofar as they won't be uh, utilized at the Olympics by any runners and any new shoes have to uh, meet some statistics that the World Athletics Organization mm -hmm. put forward. Um, that's to me where it gets interesting. Um, and this is where I would be interested to hear where, where you kind of take it from here because now we're talking about bureaucracy, now we're talking about the Olympics, now we're talking about politics, we're talking about consumerism. There's a part in this that uh, any attention is good attention from the perspective of those that uh, have the potential to make money off of attention. So in that way, like if you go to Google and type in Nike Vaporfly, the first thing that pops up is not a news story about the world organization. The first thing that pops up is a shoe that costs $250, right? Mm -hmm. um, it, it has significance all the way down to like local runners. Um, and there, I have seen some stories that said like where this story really came from was from local running organizations appealing to the uh, World Athletics Organization saying, what should we do? Because a lot of people are really pissed off at these local races when some guy that they used to beat is now beating them by five minutes in a 5K. You know, just like outlandish um, uh, help for your average runner too. And so ultimately for me, it comes down to this piece of uh, in all these articles, you hear about the preservation of the integrity of running. And that that seems so conceptual and so philosophical uh, and so laden with power dynamics, that idea of like who gets to uphold the integrity of a sport mm -hmm. and what are we really talking about? And I think what we're really talking about are social contracts and we're talking about social contracts as put in place by those that have the capacity and potential to make a lot of money by framing the narratives around what we should approve of and not approve of. So that's kind of maybe a, a longer introduction than I thought I was going to say. <laughs> well, I think it's very good. And I, um, so I'll just ask you this at the end of the day. Um, do you feel like these shoes should be banned? So I have that question to you, and I don't have a straight answer. Here's here's where I go with that thinking is I think Nike simply made a little bit of a mistake in that they did too much too fast. Uh, if they maybe would have just used one carbon insert this year and then in two years two carbon inserts and then in three years three carbon inserts, no one would have said anything because the times would have come down slowly and we would have called it progress. Hmm. And as technology continues to stomp its way through the sports world, and I don't think it'll ever stop, uh, it's about progress as opposed to cheating. And just because I think the change happened too fast. And so now we're talking about a time piece in that like, where do our expectations for what progress is and what cheating is come from? Um, and so I... Yeah, maybe really what needs uh, limiting or what needs a policy is uh, time, the time piece. And so saying like, um, 
we know run inches are going to continue to progress, uh, but you just can't do it that fast. And everyone needs access to the same materials and the same technology. Um, but gosh, how do you how do you do that? <laughs> so here's my thought. I think where they screwed up is they did it as a prototype. Um, yeah. And so Nike then becomes uh, the placeholder for who can have access to those shoes. Right. Um, I think once you make those shoes publicly available, I think there's no reason to ban them at all. Um, mm-hmm. And so I don't quite, I, I think these runners on a Nash on an international level that have problem with the shoes need to shut up. Um, let's be clear here. You're not going to beat Kipchoge anyway. So right, it's right. not because of these shoes. He was beating you before he had these shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, and once you make them publicly available, so if Joe Schmo, and that was the big thing that I saw from the ruling was that runners can only use shoes that the public can buy as well. Right. Uh, I think what you're saying with that is essentially now um, you may choose to be sponsored by New Balance and then you can mm-hmm. only wear New Balance shoes. But theoretically, if your goal is to run the fastest marathon ever, then you will buy whatever shoes get you the fastest marathon ever. And if those shoes are these Nike shoes, then you will buy those. And it's not like we have to give New Balance Nike's foam in order to allow them to do that. We want right. these companies are continue to innovate. I mean, that's what that's what our system encourages them to do. Uh, and so as long as everyone has the capacity and the right to buy those shoes, I don't see why it's a problem for someone to have them. Then you're just mad that your sponsor, you should be mad your sponsor didn't do as much uh, investing in this technology as Nike did. Um, and I found that to be a really interesting piece of it all is that a lot of the professional runners that are under contract with other um you know, other companies that make running gear and running shoes were essentially handcuffed by the contracts they signed Mm -hmm. with their sponsor because they couldn't come out and say, my sponsor sucks. I have shitty shoes and the Nike runners have the best shoes right now. And that's why I'm losing. Like you, there, there is not really space for that unless, and this gets back to the kind of other point I was making is that like, unless that change is too extreme, Right, and so that's where I feel like Nike's mistake was, but I don't know if they would call it a mistake. They've probably made a ton of money off this whole story uh, as well. Mm-hmm. But that that having signed a contract with another company, being what handcuffs a runner that feels they're being cheated, is really fascinating to me. Well, you know, I kind of um, so you know, as a big cycling fan, this is a big part of our mm-hmm. world. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, there's always new bikes. They're always testing the limits of aerodynamics. Uh, you know, these teams are going to the limits. The statistic was amazing for me. Um, apparently, there's a part, like, once you've ridden a bicycle chain for 250 miles or something like that, it's at a sweet spot where it offers the least resistance of its lifespan. And so what the Team Sky or Team Enios now will do is they'll ride their, your chain for that long in training, and then they'll put it in a Ziploc bag and save it for when they have a race, and then they'll put it on your bike for race time so that you have that a hundredth of a hundredth of a percent increase in your capacity for performance. Um, and so all this stuff is incredible, but they have for a long time instituted, like you have to have a bike that essentially looks like a bike. And that includes these four 
capacities and you approve every new bike that comes in. And so those changes are happening, but they're very incremental. And there is a body that says, no, this is a legal bike or no, this isn't a legal bike. Mm -hmm. Uh, And to race often these bikes nowadays, they have to put weights in the stems uh, to make them up to weight. So they're not under the, because most of them can be made to weigh significantly less than the required weight for a professional bike. Um, and so all of that is, is fascinating. And I think we'll see that as time goes on, these different sports will kind of come to grips with it. And I think running has just kind of handled this poorly and that it's a new issue for them to deal with. Although I think you could argue this stuff's been happening forever in running that, uh, I remember in London, they talked about how the track in London was made of a material that was supposed to be faster than any other material that they'd ever run on before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, was, I remember thinking, well, isn't that, what does that mean about our records and how much has that changed everything? It's not the runners not changing it. It's us as the fans and the stadium constructors building it because we want to see world records. Right, right. Yeah, it, it, it shines a light on what we value as the consumers of the sport or at least what we're fed and told to value. So something like a record, you know, uh, being what, captivates us and pulls us in and keeps keeps mm-hmm. us watching um and in that way it it causes me to consider uh how how powerful our memories are of what a sport is supposed to be mm-hmm. and and it, it gets into this space too of, of considering like what is radical and to what extent we have space and allowance for radicalism in sports uh, insofar as it relates to what kind of changes we're able to stomach and which ones we're not, which ones we're going to call cheating. And I, I always find it interesting to use what feel like completely bizarre examples to make the point. So thinking about cycling, it's, it's like, well, um, I'm going to use a motorcycle in the Tour de France. <laughs> Someone being like, no, you can't do that. That's mm-hmm. not cycling. Like it's a bike. It looks like a bike. It acts like a bike, and I can make the motor really, really small, probably small enough to where you could like barely even see it. Oh, it's been done, right? So like that's what's fascinating to me is like, what's the difference between a 150 mile or 250? However, would you say 150 mile chain? Yeah, chain, yeah. Yeah. What's the difference between a 150 mile change and a and a motor? Um, well, what's the difference in some ways between that and the nutritional changes that we've seen these athletes go through? Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, it's really slippery. And and so, and that's where I then get really interested in how the organizations that are responsible for policy respond. Mm -hmm. Um, we, we, we can learn a lot by looking at them and I, I think it's, it's fascinating that the uh, World Athletics Organization in this case has said nothing that was done was illegal, <laughs> but if you do it tomorrow, it is illegal. Mm-hmm. Well, I think Which, it, you know, in the in the cycling world, and this is really for a lot of sports. There's a conversation right now about ketones. I don't know. If, are you familiar with this? Mm-mm. So it's a it's a biological substance of some kind i have really no idea what it does um but it apparently is one of these things um you know similar to a protein shake uh but vastly different biologically of course but will give you significant rewards if you do it on the end and it's all legal right now but a lot of folks are like 
I am troubled by the fact that these are legal right now because of the level of performance gain. I think you're right to go back to the question about the gradualness of things. I think it sometimes comes down to, um, all right, is this step okay today um, versus is it going to be okay in 50 years? Mm-hmm. And I, I do think it's important to point out here, um, for me anyway, I do not feel that the records of today diminish the what was done in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do not think that um, the way we run the mile now makes Roger Bannister's four-minute mile look any less impressive than it was. Mm-hmm. when he did it. And I think it comes down to context and understanding that maybe for a, you know, maybe for a teenager these days, they look at it and say, Oh man, they were really slow back in the day. But when you really look at it, I think you understand why well, this is a much different thing. And I, you know, I think that's, that's everywhere. I think in some ways, I think we have to come to an understanding that even in, in every sport, uh, engineering is part of that sport in this day and age. Mm-hmm. And there's in the simple human biology and scientific aspects mm-hmm. of like part of the reason we can run a faster mile now is because we learned that if you measure your heart rate and training and adjust your training to your heart rate, you get faster over time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's like, is that illegal? Are we going to tell someone that they can't measure their heart rate and training? Because essentially, it's it's the same concept as putting a carbon fiber insert in a running shoe. Well, heck, I mean, the big conversation in cycling right now is uh, power meters. So essentially, right now, you can tell how much power you're pointing out at any given time. And so these guys all know that I can put out this much power for this much time. And so it's taken out some of that romantic guesswork of you know going up the field. And so I would argue that the sport would be better without power meters. But it's also hard for me to argue you know, that it's it's not still entertaining and, and really interesting and that we're seeing performances that push the limits of what's possible still. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it makes me think of, uh, I, I guess, some of the, like, primary tenets of anarchism, of, like, how you maintain a social contract with, without a bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. And I, I think you see it in cycling a lot when... And, and this is an amateur's perspective, so I, I could be way off. Uh, but how much finagling happens in the peloton, mm-hmm. but how the contract that kind of hovers over the peloton allows for a little bit of finagling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that it's often when the outside agencies get involved is when you start to see the peloton get a, get upset. Uh, and it's often that when an individual rider, and this is true for the running world, I think, too, when an individual comes to the attention of those organizations, it's because the peloton is speaking out and saying someone's breaking our code. And, and we know it's loose. It, it gets gray on the boundaries. But if all of us are in on it, then we can have an acceptance for a certain amount of grayness. And so I think um, uh, some of the questions that I think need to be addressed here are, you know, who has that power um, Mm -hmm. and do we trust them? But also I think what are the clear limitations? And I think one of the things that comes down for me um, is the question of safety. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I think what we've seen with, and part of our, um, you know, we obviously weren't alive 20 years ago. And we might have had different, well, we were uh, 40 years ago, sorry. Uh, I'm much older than I think I am, apparently. <laughs> uh, 
But I think we might have thought differently about football because I think it was less, you know, these people were just not as big. They weren't as strong. They weren't as fast. Uh, it mm -hmm. wasn't quite as violent as it is now. Mm -hmm. I think that some of the things we've seen with this has made it a more violent game and made it a more dangerous game. And I, I think we've seen that with cycling, that the way these bikes are aerodynamic now makes the game, the uh, Peloton a much more dangerous place than it was before. And what, what is mm -hmm. the limit for how much we can do with that? Mm -hmm. Um you know, what are the limits for, um, you know, a baseball bat uh, in terms of how safe it can be? How safe does it need to be, even if you get performance gain off of it? Uh, I think that's where I really would draw the line with needing to ban something is if I thought it pushed the boundaries of what was safe. Mm -hmm. I feel like that is an opportunity to bring in the piece, too, about, as an example in this case, the fact that it's Nike and how the narrative might play out differently were it Adidas that came up with the technology uh, for the shoe or mm -hmm. better yet, even like some homegrown uh, small local company that came up with the technology. Well, let's be clear. They probably did. Uh, yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and so in that way, it, 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 it's... Um, if the Nike, if Nike or the Yankees are the progenitor of that quick change, that's not as incremental as the Peloton, so to speak, mm -hmm. would like. Uh, it, it changes how it plays plays out to some extent. Well, it is funny too. I mean, you mentioned um, that these spawn, these people can't speak out about how they're being. They're just mm -hmm. angry. Their shoes aren't as good. Yeah. Uh, ironically, in the Tour de France last year, a guy climbed off his bike in the middle of a race because he is so fed up with his sponsor's equipment, and he quit the team <laughs> in the middle of the race. Uh, yeah. And he went on to win uh, the time trial world championships on a different bike that was to his choosing and to his specifications. So that's fascinating. He was just like he is a bit of a diva, but um, he's yeah, like, I'm not going to do this. I'm sorry, I'm not going to do this. <laughs> I've always had the thought of if I would I don't know if I would want to write it, but I would love for someone else to write it. it is kind of an oral history type book about the um, now defunct Nike golf equipment mm -hmm. and how it came to be that the number one player in the world was playing with Nike clubs and now Nike clubs don't exist. And I've always wondered what it would be like to trace it back to, I think it was maybe 15, 16 years ago, that Phil Mickelson said, what's most amazing about what Tiger Woods is doing is that he's beating all of us with equipment that's not as good as ours. <laughs> uh, and Tiger incredible. never commented on it, which is to say Tiger was like, yeah, that's true, my clubs suck. And I signed a contract for him, so I'm going to do it anyways, but... Uh, and I am beating you with clubs that aren't as good as yours. Um, That's incredible. I'd not heard that story before. Yeah, I mean, apparently they were they were terrible there for a really long time. Um, so um, the other piece that I think we haven't touched on yet that I think is interesting is the question of inclusion and exclusion in this mm -hmm. conversation. Um, I think it's a complex one because I think technology has the capacity to go in either direction. Um, that we've seen it be exclusionary. And we know right now, I mean, these $250 shoes, I can't afford them. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that can't afford them. Uh, you know, and that's not necessarily an issue at the top end of the sport, but it is an issue if you're 
trying to get started or you wanted a, a leg up and you need that as your disadvantaged population. Um, so is that aspect, but I do think there's this other aspect of going back to golf. Um, you know, there was this innovation. I don't remember when it happened. I'm not as familiar with it as you are, but when we started going to hollow back clubs, mm-hmm. um, because they're much easier for amateurs to play with than the, um, the the full club Um, and yet we still see that the pros would rather play with the full full back in it because they feel like uh, it's i I don't know exactly but uh, they clearly get an advantage from that but Mm -hmm. so technology has allowed these amateurs to close the gap a little bit but it's not giving the top end folks an advantage and that's an interesting uh, dilemma as well i feel like Mm -hmm. so on, on this piece i think of formula one and in Formula One, there's a constru- constructor's uh, trophy and there's a driver's trophy. And I think it would be fascinating to implement that in other sports mm. that hinge on technology. And so at the end of a running calendar year, there being a, a, a trophy for the equipment company that made the uh, most important and most significant gains in technology that year. Hmm. Um, I, I guess, though, I, I, that's contrasted, too, with me for, with uh, the idea of, like, what would it look like if uh, the technology companies all shared an open space where hmm. communication is free and flowing and everyone, <laughs> like, said, like, wouldn't it be cool if we used this or if we did this? And how glaringly clear it becomes that this is all about the market and this is all about mm-hmm. capitalism at the at the end of the day. Um, and so that access piece, I think, highlights for me the capitalism of it all and how there is potential there for exploiting that in another way that maybe wouldn't be a bad way is to have like the constructor series as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I think uh, what we have to remember is that these Nike has not created these shoes because they run the fastest marathon. Mm-hmm. They've created these shoes because they've run the fastest marathon, which allows them to sell more shoes. Right. Um, and that's always the bottom line with that. All of these things is that's why these technological innovations are happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there was a time when the Soviet union was driving it because they wanted cultural domination. That is no longer the effect. All of the, dri- all of it is being driven by, um, uh, individuals that want to win or companies that want to make money. Mm-hmm. And to extend that to just the power and prestige of the Olympics, mm-hmm. uh, which I, I think is a significant piece here that uh, world athletics was feeling pressure because the Olympics are coming up. Uh, and so 2020 in Tokyo, uh, there needs to be a little bit of a level playing field and all the stakeholders that are in this business together even Nike probably would agree that we don't want the Olympics to be under a blanket of doubt mm-hmm. uh, that something suspect is going on because we, we need this thing to keep going because it's, it's where we make our money. Uh, so we need to keep the public believing in this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it is fascinating to kind of narrow all that down. And I do think it's, it's frustrating when you break it down, at least for me, about how it's all just about the money. Um, mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I think I also 
uh, am guilty of enjoying it to a certain level. Um, mm-hmm. And I think we underestimate just how powerful it is. You know, Steve Ballmer, in researching for today, I read this ridiculous quote from Steve Ballmer talking about how he didn't think technology was really influencing the way the Clippers played basketball. And I was like, that's the stupidest thing I've seen in a long time. That's really stupid. <laughs> and like, there's all kinds of technology, and maybe not everybody, but the folks at the top end, you don't believe that LeBron is yeah. looking at all kinds of proprietary software about how he's doing things, that they're sleeping yeah. in hyperbaric yeah. chambers, they're, they're doing yeah. all kinds of things to change. It's absurd. Um, it's absurd. Um, and so, and it goes to every single sport. I don't think there's any sport we can talk about that's immune to this. I mean, yeah. Um, I think we could talk about cricket and the way that this is done. I, well, I think it's even things that we don't think about. You know, you were talking about um, earlier how we'll look back on things. And I think about, you know, there's this grainy footage around of Pele scoring this goal in the World Cup. I'm sure yeah. you know the goal I'm talking mm-hmm. about, uh, the volley. Mm-hmm. Um, and the main takeaway for me is like, man, that, that kind of looks like a crappy goal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then you think, then you look at the pitch he's playing on, you're like, man, how do they play soccer at all? Yeah. on that field and you right. look at the shoes they're wearing like man they could that was what that's what they were wearing when they did this yeah. <laughs> yeah. and all of a sudden it's like okay it's a different game nowadays yeah. Yeah. and we see that you know in my chess we've got these computers changing everything we've got we've got it in, in racing for sure we've got it in basketball football has changed drastically due to this stuff i don't think there's anywhere we can look at where it's not changing the sport and so that's what I like about this conversation and maybe in kind of closing that to talk about this in particular and to use, we could have used any example. It just so happened that the Nike Alpha Fly was in the news this week. And so it was a good example of it, that this is always happening. This conversation is never ending and it's always underlying the entire sports and society world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's just kind of a reminder that this is happening every single day, um, which is a, that you, the comment of that technology is not helping the Clippers is a perfect way to point that out. Like, you idiot, it's, not, it's constantly happening and it's constantly helping, helping anyone uh, that is achieving anything in the sports world. So, Absolutely. And I'll just... Um... As kind of a final statement, I'll also just throw out there that I love it when it doesn't work. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, those are always fun. Uh, so this, I don't know why this stands out to me, but the Winter Olympics, the most recent Winter Olympics, the U.S. speed skating team dramatically underperformed. I think they were expected to win, you know, ten something medals, and they won one. I think, mm-hmm. um, and they came into it. Uh, talking about these amazing speed suits they have that were going to change the game and, uh, you know, were vastly more aerodynamic than anything that had been used before. They had all these little bubbles on them. And yeah. then all of their athletes come out and underperform. And I can't help but think it's directly related to that crappy piece yeah. of technology. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. How many of those guys are like, man, this thing I got screwed over because of this, this, this suit that you made me wear? Yeah. I love it. Oh, All right. I'll also point out that people love to call things alpha, that the, the name of the uh, Microsoft mm-hmm. uh, AI that's changing the chess world is alpha zero. So on top of your alpha fly, everybody wants to be alpha here, apparently. It was so funny getting into shoes this week of the names of them. So the the <laughs> one that's so going to go to the market for Nike is Nike Zoom Vaporfly 4% Fly Net. Yeah. And that's... Uh, 
so now it's it's going to be in contrast with the shoe that had done best before, which was the Adidas Ada Zero Adios Three Boost. <laughs> I love it. Oh, that's absurd, and how they look is even more absurd to me. Yeah, how the person that comes up with design the look of of shoes has got the weirdest job in the world in some ways. Agreed. All right, dude. Well, um, what are you going to be paying attention to this week? Uh, so this week um, maybe is a little bit of a misnomer. I think going forward, and I, I was going to throw this out as maybe something to talk about as a main topic, but uh, the Golf Premier League. Hmm. Uh, have you come across this at I all? I have not, no. So there are some financial backers behind an idea or a concept of coming up with a tour to challenge the PGA Tour. And what they are offering is an incentive that can beat the PGA Tour's incentives. Hmm. And so their unapologetic goal is to have an 18-week tour, uh, which would be in contrast with the PGA Tour having like a 48-week um, uh, season now, which all the players hate. They don't want to play that much. Um, so they're saying 18 events, and every week there will be a $10 million um, purse. And also, mm. they're only going to have the top 40 players in the world at each event. Interesting. Um, so it's extremely elite, extremely exclusive, meaning to exploit that which the PGA Tour exploits, which is those top players. Uh, and so their goal is to, like, they're like, no, we're gonna, we're going to get all 40 top players to do this mm. because the money is going to be so outrageous that they won't be able to say no. Um, it would be worldwide. So the events would happen all over the world. What I think is maybe most interesting about it. And the only reason I think any of us should take this idea seriously is that the Saudis have signed on. Uh, uh, so, yeah. So this idea was first floated back in like 2012 was the first time they, some of the financiers approached PJ tour players uh, but what has changed since then is that the Saudis signed on. And so now it, it has a certain amount of uh, legitimate push that it didn't have before. Hmm. So I, th I think it's interesting for all those reasons, but I think it might be interesting as a main topic one week to discuss Saudi money in sports. Yeah. Hmm. Well, it's, the, the whole question of money as the incentive for sports is really interesting to me. I, I have to confess to watching or listening to um, – some clips from the Joe Rogan podcast this week. Don't hate me. I uh, won't. All you liberals out there. That's been one of the most fascinating stories of the week for me is how that the whole Bernie thing has played out. But um, yeah. I find this stuff very interesting, um, if only from an anthropological perspective. But um, he had a way, uh, someone from the world's strongest man on. And he talked, this guy was talking about how absolutely pathetic payout is for world's strongest man mm -hmm. um that apparently if you're named world's strongest man you get fifty thousand dollars and you oh, have to wow. pay your own way to get there yeah um and there's apparently a competitor but it's not as name recognition driven as world's strongest man that pays about twice as much and has yeah. guaranteed money and so like he's like well maybe that'll win out but it's hard because the name of the 
world's strongest man is still pretty daggone strong. And so it's yeah. fascinating to kind of follow mm. that and what it means. And I, I, it's the same kind of question I think we're seeing with the NBA with this in-season tournament. Everybody's like, well, you're going to have to put a bunch of money behind it for people to care. And right. I do sometimes wonder if the prestige matters as much for these players as the money does. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much in it to talk about. Yeah. You know. Uh, what about you? Uh, well, so kind of two things on my plate. One is a very basic thing. This is this is Super Bowl Sunday, and so I will be watching the Super Bowl later today, at least in passing while I'm at a party with some other folks. And I'm always intrigued to see kind of how I personally respond to that after only watching, you know, 10 minutes of it the rest of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, also uh, how the how it's presented in that in that space so be intrigued to see how that kind of goes um but on my niche sports love which you know how i love a niche sport um Mm -hmm. uh brody smith who's one of the probably the most famous ultimate player in the world even though he's probably not was never close to the top the best player in the world maybe top 20 at his prime um Mm -hmm. But created a social media following online, uh, several million YouTube followers doing trick shots with Ultima Discs and all this jazz. Mm-hmm. Um, his knee gave out several years ago, so he kind of had to give up Ultimate, and he's been dabbling in golf, real golf. Well, he's just decided to devote all of his energy to disc golf um, for the foreseeable future, and I'm fascinated to see... But a how he's able to be if he's able to be competitive in the near term and you know he certainly has a long way to go but he's also shown to have some skills that could make him an interesting competitor here early on and um how the rest of the sport will respond to having a person who will probably be the most popular figure on tour already their first tournament uh, when they join the tour and just what all that means for the sport and for the players involved. That could go so many ways. It could be amazing for the disc golf world, but I could also see it creating some real turmoil in that space. Well, it's been interesting. You know, he himself is, um, his name is Brody. I mean, that uh, uh, yeah. I hate to be that person, but that kind of tells you what to expect from his personality. He's very brash and outgoing, although it's been interesting. So that's his normal personality, but we're seeing, I think, or I've seen because I've been following it, um, uh, that there's a different side to his personality, that he's still brash and stuff, but he, uh, he seems to be very also interested in learning and competitive, which I think um, makes him a more interesting and complex character again. Mm-hmm. Um, Interestingly, he was on the Amazing Race. If you uh, if you're an Amazing oh, Race, okay. Fan. So interesting. Uh, he and another Ultimate guy did it. Um, uh, but fascinating to see what it goes. And it's been interesting that thus far the other players seem to have been very open to him coming in. Okay. And so he's been doing stuff. He signed with Discraft, um, which of course makes the Ultimate Disc. So it's a pretty natural fit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But. Uh, Discraft is also the sponsor for the number one player in the world, Paul Macbeth, who wins, you know, is that guy that wins 75% of the tournaments that he enters, five-time world champion, all this jazz. Um, Right. uh, And so they've been doing a series of videos together about uh, Brody learning the sport. And so there's that whole aspect of it, too, where he's already got the number one athlete in the sport on his side and helping him get there. And what does that mean? And um it's just uh, there's a lot to unpack if only from a weird niche 
sport, mm-hmm. which seems to, I love that when these stories come up in this space, cause we don't ever get to hear about them, but there, there's, there's so many of them. I mean, I know that there's turmoil on the lawn bowling society right now. We just, oh, yeah. we don't know yeah. what it is and it would be fascinating <laughs> to figure out. Absolutely. Like wherever there is organized sports, there is uh, a, a society operating within it that would be fascinating to unpack. And I'm pretty sure my prediction would be that all the same patterns and themes that we discuss would be there in, in no matter what you latch on to. Yeah. <laughs> all righty. Well, you got anything else this week, man? I don't think so. Um, I'm going to probably have to avoid watching Frisbee trick shot videos for the next hour. So thank you for that. <laughs> I, there's no reason to avoid it. They're quite uh, quite entertaining. <laughs> all right. Sounds good. All right. Uh, well, thank you all for listening. Please giving us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And uh, please subscribe. We'll be back next week. Uh, I think we'll be talking about something else, sports-related probably, during that time. Um, but in the meantime... Uh, I'll see you later, Carl. Alrighty, enjoy the Super Bowl. <laughs>